Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey guys, and welcome to episode three of season two of the All About Everest podcast. I'm so excited about today's episode. I interviewed the mountaineer and creator Alex Harz. You might know him from the new documentary that was just released to the public a little over a month ago, Quest Nepal. We're going to talk about this new documentary as well as his upcoming projects, including the documentary Quest Everest and his Everest VR experience. Hey guys, and before we get to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to share with you a sneak peek to the February 2023 Nomadic subscription box. As you guys know, I've been a subscriber with them since 2018, and it's a monthly subscription box for the outdoors lover. The February 2023 box includes the Camelback Podium Chill. It's an awesome water bottle. I love the little valve thingy on top. The model affinity tool, even though it works great with any model bottle, you can also use it to fix your sandals, use it as a keychain, a hook. It's kind of a multi-purpose thing, and it's called an infinity tool for a reason. The Fieldshare Mobile Cooling Hydrologic Neckband. I used one of these on our backpacking trip last year. Oh my gosh, it totally made a difference. And the Ultima Replenisher Electrolyte Hydration Powder. I've never tried Ultima before. I've always used Liquid IV, which I also got a couple years ago in my Nomadic subscription box. And this is just a great way to try out new things for all of your outdoor adventures. You can go to thenomadic.com. I'll have the link in the show notes. And if you use the code EVEREST, you can get 10% off your next order. That could include a monthly subscription box, purchase of past boxes from previous months, or some of the gear that they sell on their website. Just a couple things before we get to the rest of this episode. Tibet still remains closed for the spring 2023 climbing season. However, there are some expedition companies like Alpenglow that are advertising expeditions for this year. There is still no approval from the Chinese government, but everyone is hopeful because there are several companies that prefer to climb from the northern side. It's less crowded and it provides a different experience. The Chinese government, they also have more rules and policies in place so that the northern side is considered safer when it comes to climbing Mount Everest. So even though it hasn't been approved yet, many of the expedition companies remain hopeful The second thing that I wanted to bring up is that the Everest Dark documentary, I have a little bit more information on that 
I believe it's supposed to launch on May 1st of 2023 and be available to the public. I did talk to the production company and it is still in post-production. They don't even have a trailer out for it, but they did tell me that they'll let me know so I can let you guys know as soon as the trailer drops. Last but not least, before we get to the interview with Alex, I launched my Patreon account. I have one tier. It's simple, short to the point. Some of the perks include the videos of all of the interviews that I've done, audio clips without the rest of the whole podcast, so you can just listen to the interviews without anything else, and a couple other perks, including a shout out on the episodes, as well as access to the monthly book club. So be sure to check it out. I will have the link in the description and also in the show notes. I'd like to welcome Alex Harz to the podcast. He is an Everest Summiter and the creator of the Quest Nepal. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Well, Pauline, it's great to talk to you today and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. So before we get into your documentary that just came out last year, December, right? A little bit earlier than that, but it finally got into the different channels and platforms throughout the United States and Canada. So that takes a little bit of time for it to uh, propagate against, you know, across iTunes and Amazon and the other platforms where you can get it at or Best Buy, Walmart and so on. So, yeah, it's finally now all across the United States and uh, Canada, and we're looking to take it overseas actually in the months to come as well. So what got you into mountaineering? Well, Ironically, what got me into mountaineering ultimately ends up in the movie itself. So what happened was when I was a teenager sitting on a couch in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, coming back from a soccer practice, I played competitive soccer, you know, for much of my life. Uh, I came back home and I was doing probably the worst thing to do as a soccer player. But when you're a young teenager, you don't know any different. So I was just uh, slamming a thing of Mountain Dew and some Doritos. And I turned on the TV to recover a little bit. And I saw something about to Mount Everest. And by the time I was done watching that documentary on Everest, uh, I said to myself, one day I'm going to climb that mountain. And then out of sight, out of mind for the rest of the time living in Nebraska, then coming out to Colorado, you know, going to school in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, one day I'm sitting on my couch in Denver, Colorado, watching absolutely nothing to do with Mount Everest. It was daytime television, could have been Ellen DeGeneres, could have been whatever, I have no idea what it was. But for some ridiculous reason, that recollection of that teenage promise of climbing Mount Everest popped in my head. So the next day I started. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't into mountaineering. I wasn't into rock climbing. I knew nothing about it besides the fact that it was quite popular out here in Colorado. And so I went and climbed my first 14er that weekend, which is, you know, the 14,000 foot peaks. We have 52 of those here in Colorado. Um, and so I went and climbed my first one in the dead of winter with snowboarding gear on, post-holing, 
had no idea what I was doing, but I slugged my way up to the summit. And then that's how the process started. And after a couple more of those, realizing that yeah, I need to know what I'm doing here because I have no clue what I'm doing, I started getting into formal mountaineering training and so on. And then the long process of getting to learn all the skills needed and then going out to climb Mount Rainier out in Washington, climbing Aconcagua down in Argentina, which is the highest mountain in South America. And then I climbed Denali in North America and Alaska. And then the, the, the idea of the quest dawned on me when I was standing on the summit of Denali, looking out over the Alaskan range all by myself with just my climbing partner at 1145 at night under that uh, perpetual Alaskan sum, summer sun. I said, I've got to do this for something more than just climbing these mountains and the dream and promise of climbing Mount Everest. And that's where it dawned on me to start using some of my background in film and television and, and business to, to put a project together. And, and if I was gonna go any further with this dream and promise to myself to climb Mount Everest, you know, I need to do it for a bigger purpose. And, and that's ultimately how I got into then the filmmaking side of things with regards to combining that with the mountaineering aspects. So tell us about the quest. What is this vision and what exactly is it? Yeah, the quest basically is designed to take a global audience on an educational thrill ride to reveal these rarely seen stories from some of the most captivating places on earth. And so as it relates to Nepal, the idea was, okay, let's not go and climb Mount Everest, uh, again, not just to fulfill a promise, but let's see if we can educate the audience and, and inform them about some things that they might not know about Everest, but even more importantly about Nepal itself, the culture and the history and backstory and how Nepal relates to Everest and vice versa. And so the idea was really to, to make it something a little bit different and hopefully to educate people along the way when we took them a ride through Nepal as well as through uh, up Mount Everest. So how long was it between the realization of your dream of this quest to when you at to when you actually were in Nepal, what was that time frame? Oh, it was many years. It was over a decade. So it took quite some time uh, because once I started getting into the mountaineering stuff and then a couple of years of training and then climbing peaks and getting, you know, at my feet wet, so to speak, and mountaineering, uh, then finally uh, the opportunity came to say, okay, um, let's go do this why we can do this and do it in the flexibility that it takes to be able to do it because I spent, for example, 63 days in Nepal filming the quest. Uh, that's a long time to, to take away from a normal corporate job, so to speak, right? Uh, then all the training, you know, I trained for a whole calendar year, seven days a week, two to three hours a day with no exceptions. I stopped drinking for a whole year. I didn't take a single day off to prepare myself physically for Everest uh, because I didn't want Everest uh, from a physical standpoint to be the limiting factor. I wanted the other aspects if I wasn't going to be successful to dictate uh, that outcome. And so it was a long, long process, but ultimately it was about oh, a decade or so or, or close to it before I finally got a crack to go to, to Everest and, and to turn on the cameras. So you have two Everest projects, essentially. You had the Quest Nepal documentary and then you have another one, which we'll talk about more towards the end. So walk us through this documentary. Why did you make it the way that you did? And how did it all come together? 
Yeah, very good question. Uh, the reason why uh, I made it the way we did was because I wanted to be a conduit. So the, the quest, again, like I mentioned before, is designed to be kind of an educational thrill ride. So it's not so much about me, but me just being a facilitator to tell the subject's story. So be it the, you know, the, the Hindu sadhus that I interview in Kathmandu or, you know, the story of the Buddhism and its relationship to Nepal or even the Sherpa people, Mount Everest and so on. That These are the important things that need to be known. And I think I should inform the audience about. And so that, so the stylistically, it's more of me being a conduit or facilitator to the story versus the story being, you know, specifically about me. Um, how we went about it was, you know, again, the, the lengthy training preparation time, of course, is one thing, but the other thing was, okay, logistically, how are we going to go do this thing? At the time, I had a radio show here in Denver, Colorado, and it couldn't have been further from documentary mountaineering or storytelling of that nature. It was an improv comedy radio show, actually. It was the first of its kind in the world where we did live improv comedy over the radio based off of audience suggestions that were given to us through Facebook, Instagram, calling into the Audi studio hotline or whatever the case may be. And then we acted out live in front of a audience of about 2.3 million listeners here in the front range of Denver, uh, Colorado. And so it was live improv comedy radio every Sunday, uh, usually after the Broncos game. So, you know, the thing that, though it was completely different than documentary cerebral style storytelling like the Quest Nepal, it was the other passion that I've always been passionate about when it came to storytelling. And I had the flexibility since I was the creator of the radio show to be able to stop, uh, put that show on pause in order to make the quest happen. So that's how it logistically came about in order to put the team together, get everybody ready to go over there and be able to spend over two months in Nepal to film uh, the documentary itself. So one of the things that really touched my heart, there was an interview that you did with a young man that you guys talked about the Nepali civil war. And that's not something that is really talked about a lot, even though we know that it exists. And why did you specifically want to include that in your documentary? Well, because that's, a, a again, a great question, and I thought that was also one of my favorite parts of the film is because, you know, under the premise of the quest about, you know, telling people about these rarely seen stories from these different locations around the world, I thought that was a good story that no one really knows about, especially in the West, you know, be it in North America, Europe, and so on. It's very, uh, it's very little coverage about it. Not many people know about it. When they think about Nepal, of course, they think Mount Everest, which is understandable, and then they, the only other thing they might know about Nepal here in the United States is, you know, one of the Marvel movies like Doctor Strange because they filmed in Kathmandu. So, you know, in order to unravel what Nepal is really all about and to tell, you know, the story of its country and, and of course, in its recent relevance, because that was a 10 year civil war, um, you know, we thought that was a good story to talk about and to, to really bring, you know, some of the backstory to the country home to the audience. I really loved that perspective, and that was one of my favorite parts of the of the documentary. Um, and you also did an interview with Russell Bryce. Either you love him or hate him, but why did you pick that interview to be part of the documentary as well? 
Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Uh, the reason why I picked Russell Bryce, uh, you know, we had a lot of interviews, but the uh, one of them that I wanted to keep in there was with Russell was because, again, like you said, love him or hate him, he he has a very strong personality. He has a very uh, straightforward perspective on things. And he, of course, is an icon and a legend when it comes to Mount Everest history. Uh, there's no question about it. He was, you know, Russell was going over to Everest for over 30 years. So, you know, he may have more experience on Everest than anybody when it comes to, you know, the actual mountaineering aspects, you know, the commercialization of mountaineering on Mount Everest and, and what it took to develop Mount Everest, you know, into what it is today. So, you know, I thought uh, if for no other reason that I knew he was going to give me a straightforward interview from his perspective. And secondly, of course, Russell has such a deep seated history with the mountain that I thought it would be quite interesting for the audience to, to hear what he had to say. So when you got to Everest Base Camp um, before you went up the mountain, what was your first thought as you trekked into base camp? You know, the, the trek to base camp takes nine days, you know, roughly speaking. Mm -hmm. in, our, in our case, it took nine days. Uh, but when you get to base camp, the first thing you realize is uh, a couple things hit me. First, I couldn't believe that I was teleporting myself back to that childhood recollection you know my teenage recollection sitting on the couch in Omaha Nebraska and here I finally am standing at Everest Base Camp be the magnetism of the mountain itself it is just massive it the lore just starts to ooze onto you everything I read about Everest everything I watched about Everest I became an Everest geek needless to say um, but all of that right away just kind of sunk into me but it also got thrown out the window at the same time because everything I thought I knew about Everest or everything I expected Everest base camp or the mountain itself once I got to the base of the mountain to be like was completely different. And uh, so it was a, a very touching moment for me personally, that not only just to make it there, but to actually be standing there and to start looking up at the Kumbu Icefall on the west shoulder and say, wow, uh, okay, this is what we got ourselves into. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, when, how many times did you go through the Kumbu Icefall? Oh, I want to say a total of eight times, if I'm not mistaken. That is a lot. What did you feel and think the first time you went through it? The first time I stood in it, I realized right away, this is a game of Russian roulette. Um, and if you're not willing to play that game, then you might as well not go any further because you're, there's, you're immediately out of control. And the things that you can't control is just putting one foot over another and hopefully that your training was good enough to do the aspects needed to make it through the icefall. But the rest from Serac collapses to the, to the crevasses opening up, to ladders falling into those crevasses, to avalanches, um, to all the things that the mountain and the icefall throws at you, hence why a lot of people call it the deadliest two and a half miles on earth you're completely out of control. So it's literally like playing Russian roulette. You just spin the dial, pull the trigger and hope uh, that you're not at the wrong place at the wrong time and that's not your day. And every time you go through the icefall, it's the same thing. Um, so I realized right then and there, I have to be able to relinquish control to the icefall and to Chomalungma or Mount Everest. Um, and uh, if I'm not able to do that, then I might as well just turn around and go home. And you climbed in, it was 2021 
is when you climbed Mount Everest. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, that's not the year. But yeah, but but COVID, you know, messed everything up uh, with right. regards to the to not only going to Everest, but even more so the post-production side of things. So, yeah, uh, yeah, COVID kind of threw a little uh, wrench in there. And also the other thing that was quite interesting is that, as you know, from year to year, the, the number of permits and the climb itself is is quite mm -hmm. different depending on, on the Nepalese mountaineering authorities uh, position and perspective on that given year. So which year did you climb? We originally climbed the mountain actually in 2018. And so we climbed the mountain in 2018, came back with all the content, got ready to start editing everything in 2019. And then at the tail end, when we were going to release uh, towards the end of the year, beginning of 2020, COVID hit, everything got then set back essentially two years because of the distribution and the editing side of things. For some reason, I kept thinking it was 2021 well it, the not reason, that early yeah the reason why that might be the case or the reason why you might think that is because we also got ongoing footage so we got we went back got additional content throughout 2021 uh as well and even as the early as 2022 so yeah so tell me a little bit about the day of your summit attempt when they said, hey, we have a window, we're going. Talk me through that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because the summit attempt itself starts back at base camp based on weather projections that, that each team takes in from whoever they get their projections from. Um, and in our case, we got our weather projections from Belgium. So, you know, several thousand miles away. And, you know, the, the Everest weather is not quite like the localized weather here where they say, oh, it's going to be sunny in 72. And for the next three days, it's going to look like this. I know it's really based off of global trade winds and high pressure systems and really worldwide weather patterns more so than it is specifically localized weather because that d depends on whether or not you can even go up for the summit and that's all relating to you know the monsoons coming out of India pushing up into the Himalayas and therefore moving the jet stream just enough off the summit of Everest to give you that weather window to go up there or the multiple weather windows you know each year it's different so our projections came you know back at base camp and then that takes then that process takes about seven days to go for the summit back down once you make that decision so when you leave base camp you're pretty much pot committed and you and you hope you made the right decisions and and if you made the right guesstimate i guess is the best way to put it and everything holds true with regards to the stuff you can't control like i said before about the ice fall you know avalanches you know health and all that stuff going to the summit um for the, during the summit push, then hopefully everything worked out. And at that point in time, when we left, I said to our expedition leader and friend of mine, Ryan Waters, who you see in the film, I said, Ryan, don't worry about me um, and don't worry about the filming and stuff. I trust your judgment and I trust Mark's judgment back in Belgium 100%. So I'm with it. I'm pot committed. I'm, I'm in it. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. And so that's kind of the approach we, we took. And that's the approach I took. And then when we got to South Call and we were uh, ready to head out around midnight to go for the summit, 
we actually stepped out of the tents. We started putting on our crampons and stuff. And it, the wind was just absolutely howling. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, the tents, you know, it was like Hurricane Everest up there. And I, I looked over, I remember looking over at Ryan and I screamed at him at the top of my lungs. And I said, Ryan, we're really going up in this. And he screams back at me and he says, yeah, you know, Mark says that about a quarter mile out of South Call, the weather should, should die down. <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, okay, sure as can be. We get about a quarter mile outside of South Car Call, heading up the triangular face and bam, the air went completely still. And uh, Mark's projections were right. And so we continued on up. <laughs> Did you have any close calls when you were uh, going up or even when you were going down? Yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, multiple of those times. You know, the, one of the first ones came actually in the icefall. I think it was right before or after our second rotation. Uh, one of my teammates, a uh, Brazilian guy by the name of Gilberto, comes up to me. We're sitting back at base camp. Yeah, it was after the end of the first rotation. Uh, we're sitting back at base camp, and he shows me a video. He says, well, I check out this video from this Brazilian website you know, that was covering the expedition. And it shows two Sherpas uh, crossing a ladder in the icefall, and boom, they fell right through. And I said to Gilberto, I said, you know, you know, Gilberto, we just crossed the, those exact same ladders about six hours ago, and we're twice the size of those guys that crossed the ladder. So why did we not fall in? And they did, right? And again, that goes back to the whole Russian roulette thing. And that was where you first kind of felt, okay, wow. It wasn't meant to be that day. Uh, another time is we actually got hit by an avalanche when we were in the ice fall, but it was only the tail end of the avalanche. And Ryan turns around and, and he looks back at us and he says, duck and cover and clip in. And so it's uh, that's, you know, a standard thing you do. You clip into the rope and then you cover up and, and hope for the best. You know, of course, ultimately, that's not going to do much if you get hit by a large avalanche. It's just going to keep parts of your body attached to the ropes and the other parts will go where they may. Uh, and of course me being as dumb as I am or as focused as I was, I pull out the camera to start filming and you actually <laughs> see that, that tail end of that avalanche in, in the, in the film. And, and uh, needless to say, it was kind of a, it took your breath a little bit more than just the altitude and the strenuous nature of the climbing at the time. <laughs> so there, there's quite a few occasions up and down um, where you, where you kind of, got a close call you know even in the ladders one of the anchors blew you know and i'm laying on my stomach to hold the ladder down because the anchor was absolutely gone and so my teammates get across the ladder you know these kind of things were just kind of par for the course as the days went on wow. what did you feel when you reached the top of the summit uh, a couple things the first thing i did was actually i gave um Reverence to Choma Lungma, goddess mother of the world or goddess mother of the earth as the Sherpa people call her, because the person that I shared the summit with was Tashi and became a good friend of mine. He was actually a Buddhist monk for 12 years before he got into mountaineering. And so along the journey of uh, me climbing Everest and going to base camp and getting to know Tashi even back to Kathmandu, I, I learned an awful lot about the, the Buddhist elements of Everest and the Buddhist elements of Nepal and so on. And we cover that in the film. And so out of respect to Choma Lungma and out of respect to Everest, I first thing I did is I bowed 
uh, up by the Tibetan prayer flags that are sitting on the summit. And then the second thing I did was I, I started to cry like a little kid in my goggles <laughs> because it was, I think it was an emotional release uh, of that taking me back to when I was about 14 years old, again, sitting on the couch in Omaha, Nebraska, that here I am, I'm actually on the summit of Mount Everest. And uh, not only am I on the summit of Mount Everest and having the opportunity to film this, I'm here all alone with just one other person for about 45 minutes. So it was... Um, a, a quite of emotional release. And then I had a, a big hug and, you know, a, a personal moment with Tashi. And then I uh, proceeded to continue to film. Which was harder going up or going down? Uh, physically, it's harder going up. Mentally, it's harder going down. And as you know, and as a lot of people know, that more people actually die on the descent than they do uh, on the descent than they do on the ascent. And that that has to do with the fact that you're so hyper-focused, you're blowing through all your adrenaline and oftentimes all your oxygen to get to the summit that you don't have enough gas left in the tank or enough mental focus to get back down. It's kind of like the analogy I give. It's like a climbing a tree. You climb a tree, you, you know, you almost do it like a ladder or you use your arms to pull up pull up pull up you get to the top of the tree but to get back down you it's literally a exercise and tiptoeing and putting your foot in the right place and having the right balance and making sure your hand holds are solid and all that and that's kind of similar to uh, to coming back down from Everest. You got to be hyper-focused on every step that you put ahead of you because, you know, certain parts are steep. A lot of it's exposed and all you have to do is, for example, clip a cramp on and that can be the end of it. So yeah, coming down definitely, um, was, I would say all in all more taxing because of the fact that you had to stay focused as well, but physically, uh, going up is definitely the harder part. How big was your team that uh, went up with you? Yeah, so there was three other teammates uh, on our team. And then, of course, we had a, a Sherpa support for each one of those teammates. And then we had Ryan as the expedition leader. So uh, we didn't have a large team, uh, but we had three other climbers as well, along with our support staff that we had at base camp. And uh, we had one manager at camp two. And then the rest of it was, was just the climbing uh, team that came along with us. And of that team, you know, the, um, one of our teammates did not make it, didn't leave the tent out of South Call. And actually two of our other teammates uh, got pretty close to not making a back down either. So it was, it was a pretty intense all around experience for the team, but um, you know, uh, knock on wood, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes. And, and here I am uh, chit-chatting you about a film. You know, would you do it again? Not likely. Um, it would it'd have to it'd have, it'd have to be a very, very, very good reason to justify that. Um, and none that I can think of right at this moment. <laughs> do you plan on doing all seven of the highest mountains on each continent, the Explorers Grand Slam, anything like that? Yes, uh, I think at this point it's it's almost um the right thing to do for me to, to complete that journey. Yeah, we're going to uh, finish the seven summits, so to speak. I've got three of them now done. I did them backwards. I did the three hardest first. Um, and then Ryan kind of made a joke about that because you, you picked them in the wrong order, Alex. <laughs> but the good thing is at least uh, you got them out of your way. So yeah, I think at this point, um, I'm going to uh, attempt to try to complete the, the other four. So because you have Denali, Everest, and what's your third one? Uh, Aconcagua. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think you should. I mean, you might as well. You're almost halfway through. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'll take your advice there for sure, Pauline. Yeah, I'll give it a go. And are when you do climb them, are they going to be part of this quest experience that you have going on? Uh, very likely. Uh, because I think the rest of those mountains kind of lend themselves to the quest, not only because of how pretty they are and some of the uniqueness of the footage that you can acquire on those peaks, uh, but they lend themselves also culturally to what's surrounding them to tell some very good stories. So I think there's a very good chance that uh, they will all be part of a quest story. And if not, a couple of them definitely will be. Well, uh, that's something I would like to see, because like I said, I'm a huge fan of the Quest Nepal. And you have, so the Quest Nepal is just a part of a bigger picture. What, what can we expect coming out this year regarding this quest? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, like you kind of uh, hinted on a little bit earlier, there's two more productions that are directly re tied into the Quest Nepal with regards to that expedition and to the 63 days that we spent in Nepal filming. Um, and one is going to be called the Quest Everest. So it is an Everest only story. Um, and that will be coming out as well in the months to come. And then there is also the first ever first person virtual reality ascent of Mount Everest. And that's gonna be called the Quest Everest VR experience. And so we'll, we pl we'll plan on releasing those two hand in hand because they kind of make sense to release together that you watch the, the Quest Everest documentary in 2D and then put on your meta or your Oculus headsets, for example, and now you can experience it in virtual reality and climb along with me uh, to the summit as well. So that's uh, what's coming down the pipe. And then we'll start planning on shooting the next quest itself. Uh, maybe later this year, it looks like there's a good chance that we'll go and shoot the next one later this year and keep that uh, quest, you know, series going uh, for an indefinite amount of time, as long as that we can continue to do these stories and that people take interest in them. And why did you decide to do a VR experience? Because that is extremely unique. <laughs> well, the reason why, and it was a, it was a really uh, audacious idea originally, uh, but what gave me the idea to do this audacious attempt at filming uh, Mount Everest in virtual reality as well was I, I like video games. Uh, and growing up, uh, the thing that I did to kind of take my way from the day-to-day -day dedication of soccer and school and those kind of things was I liked playing video games. And, and some of the video games I liked the best were those first-person shooters or first-person person role-playing games where it puts you in the actual character itself and I said well heck we're going to climb the mountain anyway or attempt to climb the mountain and we're going to go film this stuff with seven different 2D cameras to, to try to get a comprehensive story on Everest in Nepal and so on I said why don't we just add a little bit more to it since we're there anyway and why don't why don't we see if we can film this whole thing in virtual reality and why don't we see if we can film the whole thing in first person virtual reality so we can give the audience the closest possible experience of what it's like to climb Everest without being dumb enough to get off the couch and try it yourself and also realizing that 99.9% .9 of the world will never have that opportunity to climb Everest. So why not give the audience an opportunity to, to get an authentic 
look and feel of what it is like to step foot on that mountain and hopefully all the way to the summit and back. And so that's where that idea came from. And so we said, well, we're here. Let's let's do it. You know, the whole thing is a gamble to begin with. Let's give it a whack. And so, again, like I mentioned earlier, I'm humbly honored to have done so and come back with my 10 fingers, 10 toes and 63 hours of footage. Yeah, there's um, on the Quest website, there is a little sneak peek to the VR experience. Um, it looks really good. Like I could already imagine myself doing that. Um, what can we expect from the documentary that you have coming out, the Quest Everest? Yeah, you know, I think it's for, for those people that um, are maybe not as interested about some of the cultural stuff based down in the Kathmandu Valley, um, and they just want to see a, a different take on Mount Everest, and that's really what they want to see. That's basically what the Quest Everest is going to give you that uh, the Quest Nepal covers as well. So if you want to get the full story about the Quest, why we were there, for 63 days in Nepal, I would recommend you watch the Quest Nepal. For those who then maybe at a later date want to just have, sit down and enjoy a, a different take on Mount Everest from other Everest films, then I would recommend that you watch the Quest Everest as well. And then, then, of, then of course, for those who, who might have uh, the disposition and are not so uh, scared about, you know, either first person uh, elements of video game sickness or any of those kind of things that you get from a first person perspective, um, then you might want to watch the Quest Everest VR experience when that comes out, especially if you have an Oculus or possibly an HTC or Pico headset and the different platforms that we're slating to uh, try to put it on. And, and I don't know if you can tell me this yet because it hasn't come out yet, but what was your favorite moment of the Everest documentary that you have coming out? My favorite moment, you know, the obvious one, of course, would be the summit, right? And for multiple reasons, a, like I mentioned before, because of the childhood dream, the emotional release, the fact that I was up there with possibly no other person I could want to be up there with more than with Tashi, um, you know, the, the collective experience that him and I had on the summit, that, that would be probably the obvious answer, maybe the, the correct answer, but maybe my favorite moment may also be being back in Kathmandu because, you know, getting up to the summit is only part of it. You have to make it back down alive, you know, like we talked about and uh, the whole process to then really come full circle in being back in Kathmandu is also a huge relief and a release because now you can say, all right, I've done this whole thing. You know, we went and we filmed the story that we wanted to film. We got the footage. I was successful on honoring a childhood promise to myself. Um, and I think maybe that being back in Kathmandu may have, may ultimately be my favorite moment because that brings that all full circuit, full circle at that point. I watched the Quest Nepal on Amazon Prime, but where else can we find it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's on Apple TV. You can see it on Comcast, Cox Cable. You can even buy a DVD at Walmart or at Best Buy or at Amazon, um, you know, different uh, platforms throughout Canada, even in libraries and so on. So what I would recommend is go to uh, thequestnepal.com. Again, thequestnepal.com. And there it lists all the current platforms where you can watch it. And then whatever's most convenient for the viewer is what I would say, go ahead and watch it on. 
And are you going to tell us what your next project is? Can you tell us what plays? Uh, I can't yet because <laughs> of a couple reasons. A, there's there's a lot of factors, you know, moving pieces that come into play here. Uh, but I will probably hint that we've narrowed it down to two very broad areas. It looks like Africa and Southeast Asia might be uh, the next ones. So let's just put it that way. Um, um, but we'll know more in the next couple months. But again, a lot of things had to do originally with COVID restrictions uh, for even mm -hmm. trying to do pre-production. Where can we even go to film? Uh, how difficult will it be to attempt to film based on COVID restrictions? And then of course, the other things that come into play are the time of the year because of weather, fact, Actors and who's available at what time to go to certain places. And then the third thing is geopolitical stuff. Uh, like you see in the Quest Nepal, there, you know, there's a geopolitical component to everything. So if you want to go and actually uh, do a production and try to cover XYZ content, uh, those, those are factors that you have to take into play because you have to say, okay, can we actually even try to get this footage based on, um, you know, the, the pulse on the ground at the time? Well, we can't wait to find out what it is. I can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, one more thing that I wanted to touch on before I let you go. This last summer, you were indicted into the Explorers Club. How did, how did that make you feel? You know, that that is a very big, humbling honor in its own right, because when I look at the people that are in the Explorers Club, for example, Sir Edmund Hillary, Tenzing Norgay were in the Explorers Club, you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, you know, are in the Explorers Club, the first people to the South Pole, North Pole, the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and even, you know, modern day people like Jeff Bezos, James Cameron, and Elon Musk are in the Explorers Club. So it, it's a group that, you know, is, is very humbling. Uh, to be associated with. And uh, needless to say, I have to kind of pinch myself a little bit, you know, also kind of pinch myself a little bit when I speak to people like you about Mount Everest, yeah, because I, don't, I haven't had time to really take it in because I'm so focused on the quest and getting the quest out to the people and to be able to, uh, you know, tell the story as best to justice as possible, that sometimes I forget about those things, you know, but when you mention it, uh, it almost gives me a little bit of a shiver. Uh, in my forearms to think of the great people from Teddy Roosevelt to the great writers and everyone else to Jacques Cousteau and so on that are in the Explorers Club um, that I'm, you know, again, like I said, humbly honored to be so uh, in that same company. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty big thing to be indicted into the Explorers Club because it's a club of some pretty amazing humans. Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. And and people that if you can only walk in their footsteps for a fraction of time or achieve some of the things that they have achieved uh, in their lifetime would be an honor in its own right uh, for me to do justice to those amazing folks. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us for the podcast. And we can't wait until the... Quest Everest comes out and the Quest Everest uh, VR experience when you have a date. Do you have a date yet on that? 
No, but it might uh, release, you know, sometime around the Everest climbing season coming up. So it might be ideal to uh, get together again and chit chat a little bit about that uh, in the months to come. Um, but I don't have a firm release date because, again, those are some of the things that I don't have direct control over at this time. Great. All right, Alex, thank you so much. And you have a good rest of your day. You as well, Pauline. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was amazing. Thank you so much, Alex. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode of the All About Everest podcast, season two, episode three. The next episode, which will drop today because I owe you guys pretty much a double feature, is an interview with the Irish mountaineer Jason Black. What an absolute treasure and gem of a human being. I love how he refers to mountaineering as a lifelong apprenticeship, some of the struggles that he's had throughout the years, and just how much he loves life. What a beautiful human, and I hope you enjoy the interview with him on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the All About Everest podcast. Please rate, subscribe, follow, and share. You can follow us on social media at All About Everest. And if you love what we do, you can even buy us a coffee. If you're interested in interviewing for us, please let us know or even sharing your Everest story. Cheers. <music>